From Brennan to the Boca Chill, from Lamy to La Push, and from the lordly Sawduck to lovely Duckabush, from Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine. The climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for listening to episode 32, The Warehouser Kidnapping. A mere three years after Charles Lindbergh Jr. was kidnapped and murdered, a kidnapping in the Evergreen State garnered national headlines. This kidnapping, however, did not end in tragedy like the previous one that turned into quite the media sensation. The crime would be concocted and planned in Spokane and carried out in Tacoma, but not without a few comedies of error. It ended in distant places such as Salt Lake City, Utah, and Butte, Montana. Again, like the tragic case of Charles Lindbergh Jr., this case involved a very well-known father, the timber king of the Evergreen State, John Philip Warehouser, and his nine-year-old son and heir, George H. Warehouser. The Warehouser family, as described fantastically by Timothy Egan in Breaking Blue, had millions of acres of private timberland in the Northwest and enough money to fill bathtubs with $20 bills. The 24th of May, 1935, at about noon, George Warehouser, on his way to meet his sister Anne, walked from Tacoma's Lowell Elementary School to the Annie Wright Seminary. The children did this every school day, where they were picked up by the family's chauffeur and taken home for a quick lunch. George's school had let out a little early that day, and not wanting to wait around for his sister, George decided to walk, taking an overgrown path that paralleled the edge of the Tacoma Lawn Tennis Club property. When he emerged onto a connecting road, he came upon two men sitting in a green 1927 Buick sedan. They asked George for directions to Stadium Way, but that was not what these nefarious men were after that day. Instead of getting directions, the passenger, who had exited the green Buick to ask George the way, grabbed him and dragged him into the back seat. He covered him with a blanket and the Buick sped away. It wouldn't take the Warehouser family long to realize that their dear George was missing, and after they conducted a brief search of the massive Warehouser home, they notified the Tacoma Police Department that their son was missing. It would take a while for them to realize that his disappearance really had a darker meaning and that he was not simply lost or just merely wandering the city. Around 6.25 p.m., though, a mailman arrived at the Warehouser home with a letter addressed rather ominously to whom it may concern, and inside it demanded a ransom of $200,000 in small, unmarked bills. Today, this amount is equal to about a little under $4 million. The dollar had an average inflation rate of 3.53% per year between 1935 and today, producing a cumulative price increase of 1,835%. To end the note, they had George sign the back of the letter to verify that they were really holding the young boy. The ransom note was a bit long and rambling, but it did include 21 points and demanded that the family pay the money to the kidnappers in five days. Point 12 in the letter reportedly said, In five days or soon as you have the money, advertise in the Seattle PI personal column. Say, We are ready. Sign it, Percy Minnie. The note went on to say that the family would be notified when the ransom was delivered. It was signed, Egoist. The Federal Bureau of Investigation, informed and brought up to speed on this rapidly evolving case, determined that the Federal Kidnapping Act had in fact been violated. 
This act was also known as the Lindbergh Law. This law made it a felony to send extortion threats through the mail following the abduction of baby Lindy and in an effort to fight the reprehensible practice of the snatch racket. Congress passed the Lindbergh Law on the 17th of June, 1932. This law made interstate kidnapping a federal felony and therefore the crime fell under the jurisdiction of the FBI and the U.S. Marshals, who were now able to, thanks to the Lindbergh Law, easily pursue kidnappers that crossed state lines. More than a dozen FBI agents were ordered to Tacoma to investigate any possible leads. Soon, the $200,000 was collected and using a method that had worked pretty well in the Lindy case and other high-profile kidnappings, they compiled a list of all the serial numbers of the 20,000 bills. After the numbers were compiled, it was sent to Washington, D.C. to be formatted into a 10-page list. This list would be published and given to any place where cash was typically exchanged, including post offices, banks, hotels, and railway depots. Two advertisements would be published in the Saturday, 25th of May, 1935, Seattle Post-Intelligencer Classified section, which indicated that the Weyerhaeuser family was going to comply with the ransom demands. The first ad read, Expect to be ready to come Monday. Answer, Percy Minnie. The second ad read, Due to publicity beyond our control, please indicate another method of reaching you. Hurry, relieve anguished mother, Percy Minnie. The day before the deadline set by the kidnappers, Tuesday, the 28th of May, saw Mr. Weyerhaeuser place another classified ad in the Post-Intelligencer. This later ad read, We are ready, Percy Minnie. These ransom negotiations were kept entirely secret with the press receiving no information outside of the classified ads. Shockingly to think about today, but initially, while the family tried to pay the ransom and free George, law enforcement refrained from interfering in the process. The day of the deadline, Wednesday, the 29th of May, Mr. Weyerhaeuser got a letter from the kidnappers. This letter contained instructions for him to register at 7 p.m. at Seattle's Ambassador Hotel on Union Street. He was instructed to register under the false name of James Paul Jones. There, he would receive further instructions. This letter also contained a short handwritten note from George stating that he was safe and healthy. The instructions were followed to the T, and after waiting at the Ambassador Hotel for nearly three hours, a letter was delivered by a taxi driver at around 9.45 p.m. that night. This letter told Mr. Weyerhaeuser to drive down to South Renton Avenue and 62nd Avenue South, which is located just a few blocks from the Kubota Garden in the Rainier Valley. There, Weyerhaeuser was instructed to look for a stake with a white cloth attached, located on the right side of the road. Upon driving to the location and finding the stake with the attached white cloth, he discovered that underneath the cloth was another note found in a tin can. This note held further instructions. He was instructed to drive straight ahead some 700 feet to another white cloth and park his car, being sure to leave the engine on and parking lights on. Mr. Weyerhaeuser did as was written. However, after waiting there for several hours, nothing at all happened. Disappointed and probably pretty damn pissed off at this point, Mr. Weyerhaeuser returned to Seattle with the $200,000 in ransom money. That next day, Thursday the 28th of May, at about 11.30 a.m., Mr. Weyerhaeuser received an anonymous telephone call. The person on the other line asked him why he blundered in following the instructions of the second note. Mr. Weyerhaeuser explained that he had, in fact, followed the instructions and waited there past midnight for absolutely nothing. He was then tersely told that he would receive another letter later and that this was his very last chance to save his son. That night, he received a weird call from a man obviously faking a European accent. 
The man stated that Mr. Warehouser needed to drive with the money to 1105 East Madison Street. Once there, he was to look for a tin can, which would be directly located inside a gate on the right-hand side. It would contain further instructions. The caller then quickly hung up. These instructions held within the tin can further advised Mr. Warehouser to drive to the halfway house on Pacific Highway, which was located near Angle Lake, about where the Silver Dollar Casino slash Roadhouse is located today. He was told to take a side road from there. After finding several tin cans marked with white flags, he ultimately found a note which contained further instructions. It informed him to leave the bag containing the ransom money in the front seat after he parked the car. It further stated that he would need to exit the vehicle but continue to leave it running, in addition to leaving the dome light on as well as leaving the driver's door ajar. He was instructed to walk down the road toward the Pacific Highway. The note said that if the amount of money was accurate, then George would be released in 30 hours, but as to where, the note did not specify. After walking away a distance of about a football field, Warehouser heard loud noises and saw someone from the bushes rush over to his car and they quickly sped away. His aggravation level rising probably once again, he walked back to the Pacific Highway and caught a ride to Tacoma to await the return of his dear son George. George Warehouser would be released by his kidnappers at about 3.30 a.m. on the morning of Saturday, the 1st of June, 1935. They dropped him off on the side of the Issaquah-Hobart Road, about four miles south of Issaquah. They left him with just two dirty blankets out in the misty drizzle of that late spring morning in the Cascade foothills. They told him to wait in a shack until his father arrived. After sticking around for a bit, and probably tired of being pretty cold, George started walking down the road. Given the time of morning and the location, there were no vehicles on the road. George ended up walking roughly six miles when he finally stumbled onto the farm of Louis P. Bonifas. There, he told them that he was George Warehouser. The family, aware of the kidnapping from the extensive area newspaper coverage, immediately recognized the name. Mrs. Bolina Bonifas took young George into the house and fed him breakfast. Her kindness went further to giving him a dry pair of socks and shoes, while her husband readied their dilapidated Model T for the long trip into town. Mr. Bonifas and George then proceeded to head to Tacoma. They stopped in Renton at about 6.30 a.m. at a Union 76 station and asked the attendant to phone the Warehouser family. The attendant did so, but was not able to reach anyone at the family home. Bonifas then called the Tacoma Police Department and told them that George was safe and that he was driving him down to Tacoma from his rural farm in the foothills. The fervor the media generated around this event was very intense, with the Warehouser family's home being surrounded nearly constantly by local newspaper reporters and photographers looking for an inside scoop. To add to the chaos of the place, there were even newsreel crews and broadcasters with some locals looking on as very curious onlookers. This must have been quite stressful for the family and probably helped to piss off Mr. Warehouser even more. John H. Deher of the Seattle Times newspaper just so happened to be in Tacoma covering the story, and when he got word that George had been released near Issaquah and was being driven home, he began to come up with a scheme of his own. With his familiarity with the area's roads, he concluded there was one likely highway that they would be traveling down, so he jumped in a taxi and took off up Pacific Highway. He caught up with Mr. Bonifas and George Warehouser about 18 miles north of Tacoma. Pretty disgustingly, John Deher gave Mr. Bonifas the impression that he was a cop, though he neither had a uniform nor a badge, and he arrived by taxi. Pretty damn sketchy, but it was a different time after all. People weren't nearly as suspicious of everything back then as they are today. 
A $5 bill slipped to Mr. Boniface ensured that George Warehouser was relinquished to the custody of sleazebag reporter John. John then went about loading George into the back of the taxi while he sat cramped on the floor and interviewed him while the taxi driver, upon John's direction, took back roads to avoid the police and the press while making their way back to Tacoma. John took copious notes during this hectic interview and learned details about George's ordeal throughout the abduction. The taxi containing George finally arrived at the Warehouser home at around 7.45 a.m., the taxi drove into the garage where John jumped out and pounded on the basement's garage door and was eventually greeted by a friend of the Warehouser family, Henry Marfield Balcom. George would then quickly disappear into the house, much to the delight of his very worried parents. Balcom was acting as the family's spokesman and issued a statement to the press stating that George had been returned home safely. He went on to make a request that would promptly be ignored altogether. He asked that further details of the kidnapping ordeal be withheld from any publication to reportedly reduce any bad effects on George's future life. The sleazebag reporter John had already slunk back to his hotel to begin to write his exclusive interview with George Warehouser, which had the headline, The World's Most Famous Kidnap Victim. This ran on the front page of the Seattle Times and was sent out nationwide by the Associated Press, and there went the family's wishes right out the window. Seems some things never change with the press. Anyways, due to the fact that investigative efforts had been delayed until George was safely returned home, the announcement that he had been returned worked to jumpstart the federal investigation with a fervor. Soon, an army of local, state, and federal law enforcement officers swept down onto the region. The local press of the day described it as the greatest manhunt in the history of the Northwest. The serial numbers from the cache would be released, and later that morning, Mr. Warehouser's 1933 Pontiac sedan, which was stolen when the ransom money was taken, was discovered abandoned at 5th Avenue South and Weller Street in the International District. After being found, the vehicle would be thoroughly searched for any evidence. The bag used to carry the ransom money was found, in addition to an empty tin can which was used to hold the notes. On the 2nd of June, 1935, a Sunday found the first ransom bill surfacing down in Oregon in Huntington, just a few miles from the border with Idaho. A Union Pacific station agent said that a man had used the bill to purchase a ticket for a train to Salt Lake City. Another bill was used in a postal money order in Spokane just two days later, and by that Friday, the 7th of June, over 20 ransom bills were picked up in various Salt Lake City stores. Investigators now had a good lead to work from. They soon figured out that several of these notes were used at a Cress and a Woolworths Five and Dime by a young woman purchasing food and other sundries. This drove the FBI to request that undercover Salt Lake City police officers be stationed in every single downtown SLC variety store to be able to rapidly screen serial numbers for potential ransom bills. This form of investigation proved fruitful on the very next day, the 8th of June, when Detective William Rogers and Patrolman L.B. Gifford arrested a woman who had tried to pass along one of these marked bills. The clerk immediately became suspicious and brought the bill to their attention, where they were able to confirm that it was indeed one of the ransom bills. Upon bringing her to the Salt Lake City's FBI field office, another marked note was soon discovered in her purse. She gave several conflicting stories before she finally told them that her name was Mrs. Margaret Von Metz and that she resided at a house that she had only rented just three days prior. 
Soon, a stakeout was commenced, and a few hours later, they arrested a man with the name Metz, tattooed across the back of a hand, and brought him to the FBI office for questioning. Guess that made identification pretty damn easy. Once at the field office, the man was identified as Harmon Metz Whaley, a 24-year-old ex-convict, and the woman was identified as Margaret Eldora Thulin, Whaley's 19-year-old wife from right there in Salt Lake City. Whaley quickly denied having any knowledge of the kidnapping, but when agents discovered two ransom bills in his pockets, he knew right there that the jig was up. Officers later found $3,700 in partially burned bills in the stove while searching the couple's recently rented residence. After the debris was very carefully collected, it was then sent off to a lab in Washington, D.C., where it was later confirmed that the bills were in fact part of the ransom money. Very damning evidence indeed. After numerous false statements were given, Harmon Whaley finally spilled the beans and confessed that he had not acted alone in the matter of George's kidnapping. Whaley stated that it was in fact William Mahan, whose real name was Daynard, who acted with Whaley in the kidnapping of George. The two had met while serving sentences in the Idaho Penitentiary at Boise. Whaley had been serving six months for vagrancy, while Daynard was serving a 20-year sentence for bank robbery. For unknown reasons, and slightly bafflingly, the governor of Idaho, Charles Ross, granted Daynard a full pardon, and he was released on the 1st of June, 1933. When Whaley finished his six-month sentence for vagrancy, he eventually drifted down to Utah, where he met Margaret Thulin in Salt Lake City on the 7th of that November. After just a brief, one-week whirlwind courtship, the two married on the 14th of November, 1933. During the next two years leading up to the kidnapping, the couple lived a very nomadic life, first staying in Salt Lake City, then moving on to Camden, New Jersey, then finally winding up in the city of Destiny, Tacoma. They reportedly stayed in these locations for only short periods of time and relied on welfare to get them by while Whaley undertook a petty criminal career specializing in small-scale burglaries and thefts. Whaley once again ran into Daynard, this time in Salt Lake City, and the pair decided to travel north up to Spokane. The pair apparently got the idea for the kidnapping from Margaret, who had just read an obituary of the Evergreen State Lumber Baron John Philip Warehouser. This obituary ran across national newspapers on the 17th of May, 1935. It spoke of the family's vast holdings and immense wealth. Given the fact that kidnappings were on the rise during this point in time, and the fact that a lot of them were successful for the offenders in getting ransom money, Margaret thought this would be an easy way into a lot of cash. A base of operations was established at the Fur Apartments in Seattle, while Whaley and Daynard drove down to Tacoma every morning to plot their kidnapping. The pair had been scouting the Warehouser family's movements for several days, but it was purely happenstance that the pair found George in front of their car on that May 24th afternoon. Taking advantage of the situation at hand, the pair quickly snatched George off the street, proving so far that Margaret was right and that this would be an easy way for them to gain a significant sum of money for being in the height of the Great Depression. Whaley would state that Margaret had no knowledge of the kidnapping until after it occurred, but she did come up with the initial idea and later helped them to collect the ransom, so I really doubt that statement made by Whaley of Margaret having no knowledge. The investigators were beginning to feel the same way. The husband and wife pair eventually gave the FBI signed confessions that detailed their activities before and after the event. 
Daynard stopped by Margaret's grandfather's house on the 8th of June at about 9 p.m., intending to pick up a suitcase that he had previously left there. That's when he was told that the Whaley's were busted and were sitting in jail in Salt Lake City. Freaked out and terrified that he would be in jail next, he jumped into his brand new Ford V8 Tudor sedan and gunned it north for the Montana wilderness. That next day, he would be spotted in Butte by an officer who had a previous run-in with him back in 1927 when he arrested him for robbing a bank. He had no clue that Daynard had been fingered in the Weyerhaeuser kidnapping, but that wouldn't last for long. That next day, Sunday, the 9th of June, a little after 6.30 in the morning, saw a patrolman discovering Daynard loitering near a gray 1935 Ford Tudor sedan with license plates. As the officer approached, Daynard fled down an alley and hid in the Idaho and Washington foothills until fleeing to California where he would later be caught, but I'll get to that in a bit. The Butte police chief and another patrolman searched the 1935 Ford and found a suitcase which contained hundreds of bills wrapped in an oil cloth. It was later discovered that these bills all matched the serial numbers on the Weyerhaeuser ransom money list. The chief immediately notified the FBI and then put out an all-points bulletin for Daynard, but he was long gone by that point. He left behind that suitcase, which contained over $15,000 in ransom money. The Whaley's, having told the FBI agents where they buried their share of the money, showed them where on the morning of Monday the 10th of June, and soon the FBI agents had recovered a gunny sack that contained $90,700. It was buried near an anthill in Emigration Canyon near Salt Lake City, Utah. When accounting for the Whaley's share of the ransom, it was determined that Daynard shorted them by $5,000 when they initially divided up the ransom. Can never trust a crook. Wednesday, the 12th of June, 1935, saw the Whaley's flown to Tacoma via a private United Airlines charter. They were formally charged when a federal grand jury indicted the pair, as well as William Daynard, though he was yet to be captured. They faced charges of conspiracy, extortion, and of violating the Federal Kidnapping Act. Contemporary newspaper accounts felt that they would most likely end up pleading guilty to the less stringent federal charges. This was likely due to the fact that the Evergreen State had recently passed into law an act which made kidnapping automatically punishable by the death penalty unless the jury specifically recommended leniency be shown, but that was not likely to happen in this high-profile case. Arraignment for Harmon Whaley took place on the 21st of June, where he pleaded guilty to the kidnapping and conspiracy charges laid against him in the indictment. Because George Weyerhaeuser had been released unharmed and the fact that Whaley had confessed, U.S. District Court Judge Edward E. Cushman sentenced him to 45 years in prison for the kidnapping and an additional two years for the charge of conspiracy, with the terms to run concurrently. He was then immediately taken to McNeil Island Federal Penitentiary. Not even a month later, he would be transferred down to the new Alcatraz Island Federal Penitentiary, which had been completed the year prior. His wife Margaret was arraigned at the same time, but this did not go as smoothly. She attempted to plead guilty to the kidnapping charges, but her court-appointed attorney argued against this and declared that there was nothing that was in the indictment that would lead to her conviction. The next day, Judge Cushman decided that it would be in Margaret's best interest that she stand trial, and so he ordered a not guilty entry into the record, and he appointed her a new lawyer for the trial. On an interesting side note, this court-appointed attorney was the former one-term mayor of Seattle, John F. Dorr, who after this trial, ran for election again, and won. He died in office in 1938. 
The trial began on the morning of Tuesday, the 9th of July, 1935, with Judge Cushman presiding. The opening arguments saw Assistant U.S. Attorney Owen P. Hughes telling the jury that George was taken from the Tacoma streets, tossed into the back seat of a sedan, and was covered with a blanket. He went on to say that his captors drove around town for hours. Then George was taken to a piece of clear-cut land by Issaquah, where he was left in a pit three or four feet square and six feet deep, and the top was roughly covered with boards. For good measure, the kidnappers kept George blindfolded until he was ordered into the pit. Before his descent into the hole, however, his legs were chained. George remained in the pit for several hours, guarded by Daynard and Harmon. Later, he was moved to another site near Tenasket where he waited while a new hole was dug. He was left there for several days, alone and chained in the dark. George was moved again and again. From Seattle, he was dumped in the trunk of a car and driven to Idaho, where his captors handcuffed him to a tree. He was then taken to Spokane, where he was imprisoned in a closet, before finally being given his freedom on a dirt road near Issaquah. By the way, that home in Spokane is still standing. The trial progressed at a rapid pace, and in just five short days, the trial concluded on the 13th of July, 1935. The trial saw Margaret being called to give testimony by her defense attorney. On the stand, she claimed to have no knowledge of the kidnapping. She also confirmed they traveled on roads in Blanchard and Spirit Lake, Idaho, which was essential in helping to make the federal kidnapping charges stick, since they had, in fact, crossed state lines during the kidnapping. Margaret also testified that she went along with the whole scheme because the fact that she was raised in the Mormon church and a basic precept of her faith was absolute obedience to her husband. She also stated that Daynard had threatened to kill her and her husband as well as George Warehouser if she didn't comply. When the trial wrapped on the morning of Saturday the 13th of July, Judge Cushman explained that while religious beliefs were by no means an excuse to justify criminal acts, compulsion through threats of bodily harm might well be a valid excuse here. After deliberating for less than six hours, though, the jury found Margaret Whaley guilty on both charges she faced. On Wednesday, the 17th of July, 1935, the same day that her husband had been transferred to Alcatraz, Margaret was sentenced to 20 years in prison for the kidnapping and another 20 years for conspiracy. They were to be served simultaneously. She was to serve this time at the Federal Detention Farm in Milan, Michigan. The Seattle Times quoted Margaret as saying after the sentencing, it will be easier waiting on the inside for Harmon than on the outside. Apparently, though, she realized what she was facing rather quickly, and because of whom. The Seattle Times again quoted her, if it hadn't been for him, I would not be where I am today. I'm through with men forever. When I come out, I'm coming out alone. Meanwhile, despite the sentencing of Mr. and Mrs. Whaley, William Daynard still remained on the run. By early in 1936, cash with altered serial numbers began to be discovered all along the West Coast. An FBI laboratory later confirmed that they were in fact part of the warehouser ransom money from the previous year. Banks and businesses were warned to be on the lookout for anybody they thought was attempting to use this altered money. A break came in the case on the 15th of February 1936 in the form of a bushy red-haired man. He entered the Canadian National Bank of Commerce in Seattle, where he approached a teller and then attempted to exchange $300. The teller's suspicions were almost immediately aroused, and when he left his cage to check the serial numbers against the FBI-provided list, the red-haired fellow took off, leaving the $300 behind, all but confirming the teller's suspicions. Because who in their right mind during these tough economic conditions would just leave behind $300? A criminal, that's who. 
The man was soon identified as one Edward Fliss, a known associate of Daynard's. He was known to go by an alias, Frank Red Lane, and he had served time at the Idaho State Penitentiary, ironically, for another bungled kidnapping. This occurred in 1929 and involved the Lieutenant Governor of Idaho. It's a fascinating story that I won't get into here, so if you have some time, look it up and check it out. I may end up making another bonus episode out of it. I haven't done one of those in a while, and I've been thinking about bringing that concept back for shorter episodes. Maybe get a Patreon set up and have those proposed bonus episodes be available for monthly supporters. Anyways, with a new lead to follow, the FBI quickly intensified their manhunt. The spring of 1936, the 6th of May to be exact, found several employees of two banks around San Francisco reporting that a man had exchanged altered bills. The quick-thinking tellers jotted down his license plate and soon an arrest would be made. The car turned out to be a 1935 Ford sedan and was registered to Bert E. Cole, who had listed that he was living at the Ventura Hotel. Ironically, it was across the street from the federal building. Early the next morning, a pair of FBI agents located the Ford sedan in a nearby parking lot and, luckily for the pair, it was enclosed by a wire storm fence and soon the pair of FBI agents disbailed the car. This was the perfect opportunity to wait and stake out the scene, the fence making the option of an escape a little more difficult. Turns out, the fence wasn't needed at all. Around noon, William Daynard made his appearance. He was doing his best Clark Kent. Though Superman was yet to debut, his only disguise was a pair of horn-rimmed glasses. He got into the car, and when it failed to start, he got out to take a look under the hood. And that's when the two FBI agents quickly made their move. Though Daynard was armed with a Colt 45, the agents were met with no resistance. Agents recovered $7,300 in money that was later confirmed to be part of the ransom payment from his pocket, and an additional $30,074 stashed in his hotel room. After four hours of intense questioning by the Utah FBI field agents, they transported Daynard to the San Francisco airport, where he boarded a United Airlines charter to Tacoma to stand trial in a federal court there. It's interesting to note that he did admit to playing a role in the kidnapping, though he flat out refused to sign a confession that stated as much. He did clue agents in on where he stashed $14,000 in $100 bills, though. He was arraigned at the U.S. District Court in Tacoma on the morning of Saturday, the 9th of May, 1936. He refused the offer of a court-appointed attorney, and almost immediately after, he pled guilty to the charges of kidnapping and conspiracy to commit a kidnapping. Each count gave him 60 years in prison to run concurrently. He, too, served briefly at McNeil Island before finally winding up at Alcatraz. Edward Fliss, known associate to Daynard, was arrested in San Francisco on the 23rd of October 1936. He offered no resistance and readily admitted to helping Daynard launder the ransom money. The next day, he was taken by train to Tacoma, where he too faced Judge Cushman. He had been indicted on charges of conspiracy and for being an accessory after the fact to kidnapping. He would be arraigned on the 4th of November, 1936, and waived the right to a court-appointed attorney. He pleaded guilty to the charge of being an accessory, but not guilty to the conspiracy charge. He pleaded guilty to the charge of being an accessory, but not guilty to the conspiracy charge. He stated that he couldn't have been in on the original kidnapping plan since at that time he was serving a 30-day jail sentence in Missoula for vagrancy. The U.S. attorney told the court that the conspiracy charge would be dismissed shortly. 
Sentencing for Fliss arrived on Friday the 27th of November 1936. He told the court, according to the Seattle Times, the kidnapping of the lieutenant governor was not a real kidnapping. We just forced the man to ride with us for a couple of hours, and when we found out who he was, we let him go. There was no ransom money involved. Judge Cushman was having absolutely none of this and sentenced Fliss to 10 years imprisonment at McNeil Island Federal Penitentiary. He also fined him $5,000, which in today's money is equivalent to about $97,000. This was the maximum punishment the judge could set, and with that, the federal government considered the Weyerhaeuser kidnapping case to be closed. The FBI had been able to recover more than $157,000 in ransom money that was returned to the Weyerhaeusers. Louis Bonifas was given lifetime employment at the Snoqualmie Falls Lumber Mill as a sign of appreciation for helping their son. The family also gave him a sizable monetary reward, which allowed him to buy several acres of land in the Snoqualmie area, which he later built a new house on. Mr. Bonifas passed away in 1992. Margaret Whaley ended up serving two-thirds of her sentence and was released in Alderson, West Virginia on the 21st of May, 1948. She went on to divorce Harmon Whaley, reverted to her maiden name Thulin, and moved to Ohio. She found employment with the American Electric Power Company and eventually returned to her hometown of Salt Lake City, where she later got married. Margaret Thulin passed away at the age of 74 on the 9th of November, 1989. Harmon Whaley was paroled from the McNeil Island Federal Prison on the 3rd of June, 1963, after serving 28 years of his 45-year sentence. In the ultimate act of forgiveness, George Weyerhaeuser gave him a job at one of the company's plants in Oregon after Whaley had wrote several letters while he was locked up where he profusely apologized for his crimes. Harmon Whaley died in Salem, Oregon at the age of 73 on the 6th of February, 1984. William Daynard, eligible for parole in 1955, was denied since it was believed that the three-time loser did not merit an early release. He would, though, be paroled later. He died in Great Falls, Montana at the age of 90 on the 18th of September, 1992. Edward Fliss ended up serving almost the entirety of his decade-long sentence. He was released from custody on the 24th of July, 1946, and I could not find out anything about him after that. George Weyerhaeuser is alive today at the spry age of 96. During the Second World War, George served in the Navy and later graduated from Yale University in 1949. He got his first taste of the family business in the summer of 1947 when he worked as a choke setter. For you listeners out there not familiar with logging terms, that is the crewman that wraps the cable around the log before it is hauled to the landing. From 1949 to 1951, he worked at the pulp mill down in Longview and then worked at the Springfield, Oregon plant where he ended up as a branch manager by 1954. Those jobs, George once said, came about as a result of a strong inclination on my part and on my dad's that I really ought to know something about the woods if I was going to work for the Weyerhaeuser Company. Today, Weyerhaeuser is one of the world's largest integrated forest product companies with 52,000 employees in over 19 countries with customers all around the globe. George's leadership was fundamental to this massive amount of growth. George could have led any company in any industry in this country or in the world, said Charles W. Bingham, George's executive vice president of Timberlands and Corporate Affairs. He was a superior executive, and if he had not been born a warehouser and he had decided to go into business, he would have been a remarkably successful chief executive anywhere. 
Specifically, George is recognized for a style of personal leadership that blended being a good listener, being a champion for product quality and high ethical business standards, and for being a true visionary. George earned many honors over the years, including the Distinguished Citizen for the State of Washington in 1984, Ambassador of Goodwill for the State of Washington also in 1984, and Chief Executive Officer of the Year, Paper and Packaging, from Financial World in 1989. George Weyerhaeuser was recognized for outstanding service to the American political system by the National Forest Products Association in 1982 and was also inducted into the Paper Industry Hall of Fame in 2001. He has also served on the boards of Boeing, the Chevron Corporation, the Rand Corporation, Safeco, Standard Oil of California, and the Graduate School of Business Administration at the University of Washington. He has also served as a director for the American Paper Institute and chaired the Washington Council on International Trade. George retired from his post as chairman of the Weyerhaeuser Board of Directors in 1999 after 50 years of service to his family's company. Continuing the tradition of leadership and values that were first demonstrated by his great-grandfather, George left his own unique legacy. A leadership anchored in hard work and respect for employees, a commitment to product quality and to the highest ethical standards, and a belief that long-term thinking is fundamental to success. On top of all his accomplishments, it may be George's humility that is most admired. A compassionate leader and a true friend to many in good times and bad, George inspired loyalty and modeled integrity, and it is with integrity that this private and devoted family man has made such an indelible contribution to Weyerhaeuser and to the entire forest products industry across the United States and around the world, despite this rather rough ordeal he suffered in his formative years. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Sources for this episode include Nostalgia Magazine, Medium.com, WorldForestry.org, The New York Times, The Seattle Times, The Salem Statesman Journal, Deep in the Woods, The 1935 Kidnapping of Nine-Year-Old George Weyerhaeuser, Heir to America's Mightiest Timber Dynasty by Brian Johnston, and HistoryLink.org. A special thank you goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. Thank you for listening to episode 32, The Weyerhaeuser Kidnapping. Episode 33 will be released next week and will focus on the ghost town of Elk Cole. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hull. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stilicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing still a Guamish and the swirling skookum chuck and Moclips and Copalis where the razor clams abound a little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound a little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound